0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to Essex Church, where this community of Kensington Unitarians has its spiritual home. Welcome, one and all, and apologies for any slight um, slowness in getting started today. Blame it on the rain? I don't know, but one or two things went awry. But I'm sure we will work it out and we'll work it out because we are here in community with one another. Ours is a community created by all those who walk through our doors and we extend a special welcome to visitors here in busy central London. Our world is a busy place, is it not? And in the midst of crowds and hustle and bustle, people can feel isolated Left out, perhaps. But here, if we're doing our job right, we're together creating an antidote to isolation. Together creating an oasis of warmth and connection and goodwill. A chance to connect, once more, with ourselves, with one another, and with that which we hold to be divine. Our God, the source of all being, And our highest good and our deepest aspiration Here, I hope we can admit our weaknesses we can share our hopes and our fears and we can support one another and recommit ourselves to living lives of meaning and purpose because I think the world needs us and I know there is work to be done And now, by our very being here together, today, I think we're creating sacred space. So let us take a moment to acknowledge that, to take a breath, and rest here now, allowing ourselves time and space simply to be part of the sacredness that is life itself. Welcome, welcome to you all. Your eyes have perhaps already been attracted to the artworks all around us, here and in the other room. This exhibition that we've created as part of Kensington and Fulham's Open Art Studios weekend And I've lit our chalice today to say thank you to all our artists. Visitors have been really impressed by the quality and the variety of your work, and I marvel at people's talent and determination. There's a lovely visitor's book, and it says, you have a very creative congregation, and I take full credit for that every (laughs) But I can't take full credit for the exhibition, thanks particularly to our warden Jenny Moy and to Jane Blackall, our arts and outreach officer for making this event happen. Our chalice flame links us with liberal religious communities all around the world. Our art display links us, I think, with the creative spirit that is a mark of our common humanity and I'm truly grateful for all these ways in which we connect. One with another. Never allow yourself to get typecast when it comes to stories or yeah. characters and the like. So, strangely, for once, I'm playing the part of the foolish person. <laughs> And my colleague John Carter, uh, minister with Lewisham Unitarians and present student at Oxford, uh, he gets to play the part of the good guy, who unusually this time is the Mullah Nasruddin, the holy fool of Sufism. But in this story, he's the thoughtful one. Among the places that the mullah Nasruddin Hajjar visited in his travel was a village whose citizens were known for being especially good at numbers. Nasruddin found lodgings at a farmer's house. And then the next morning he found out that the village had no well. Every single morning in that village, someone from every family loaded one or two donkeys with empty water jugs and then they went off to a stream that was over an hour's walk away, filled the water jugs, brought them back again, took another hour.
1: Wouldn't it be better if you had water in the village?
0: Oh, yeah, much better. You know, every day, that water costs me two hours of work for a donkey and a boy who drives the donkey. That comes to 1,460 hours per year, if you count the donkey as being equal to the boy. Do you know, if the donkey and the boy were working in the fields during this time, I could, for example, plant a whole field of pumpkins and harvest an additional 457 pumpkins every year.
1: I see. I see. You've got everything nicely figured out. Then why not dig a canal and bring the water to the village? No,
0: that's not so simple. There's a hill in the way. And we'd have to dig that up and move it. And if I used my boy and donkey to dig a canal instead of sending them for the water, do you know, it would take them 500 years. That's if they work two hours a day. I've maybe got, I don't know, 30 more years to live Inshallah, so it's cheaper for me to have them fetch the water.
1: Yes, yes, I see. But would it be your your responsibility alone to dig a canal? There are many families in this village.
0: Ah, oh, yes. Now, I think they put this bit in for the maths. There are exactly 100 families. If every family sent a boy and a donkey for every day for two hours, then the canal would be finished in five years. And if they worked ten hours every day, it would be finished in one year. So, Why
1: don't you speak to your neighbours and suggest that you all dig the canal together?
0: Ah, yes. You see, if I have an important matter to discuss with a neighbour, I invite him to my house, serve him tea and halva, I talk to him about the weather and the prospects for the next harvest, then about his family... His sons, his daughters, the grandchildren. Then I have a meal served to him and after dinner we have tea again. Then he asks me about my farm and about my family. And and then we get to the matter at hand, nice and slowly. That takes a whole day. Since there are 100 families in this village, I would have to speak to 900 heads of household. Now, you have to admit, I can't spend 99 days in a row having these discussions. My farm would go to wreck and ruin. The best I could do is to invite a neighbour once a week, say, to my house. Now, since a year has only 52 weeks, that means it would almost take, what, two years to speak to all of my neighbours. If I know my neighbours, everyone would finally agree that it would be better to have water in the village because they're all good with numbers. And if I know them, every one of them would promise to join in if the others joined in too. So after two years, I'd have to start all over again. I'd have to invite them to my house and tell them that the others have also agreed to join in. (laughs)
1: Fine, fine, fine. But after four years, you would be ready to start the work. And after one more year, the canal would be completed.
0: Now, oh, there's one more complication. <laughs> You'll admit that once the canal has been dug, everybody will be able to fetch water from it, whether he did his share of the work or not.
1: That, that's right. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't guard the whole length of the canal.
0: Exactly. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't guard the whole length of the canal. So someone who's a slacker would have the same benefit from the canal as the others, but without the cost. Well, I yes, I would have to admit that. So everyone who is good at numbers will shirk his duty. One day it'll be a lame donkey, another day someone's boy will have a cough, then someone's wife will be ill, and the boy on the donkey will be needed to fetch the doctor... You see in our village everyone is good at numbers so everyone will try to get out of doing his share and since every one of us knows that the others won't pitch in no one will send his donkey and his boy to work so the canal won't even be started. I do have
1: to admit your arguments sound very convincing but but, but hmm. I know a village it's on the other side of the mountains that had that exactly same problem as you have here. But they've had a canal for 20 years now. Ah,
0: right. But they aren't good at numbers. (laughs) (laughs) And let's take that message into a time of prayer and reflection. As I call on the great spirit of life and love to be with us now and to bless all that we do and say together here today. Here, once more, we can connect with the God of our hearts, with the part of us that encourages us onwards to be the best that we might be. We who know that to be human is to be self-interested We who know that we view the world and all its doings from our own perspective. May this knowledge help us to understand other points of view. In a short time of silence now, let us think back over recent days and weeks in our own lives, and perhaps spot any moments of self-centeredness. And if we wish, make some resolve to take a broader view. and in the life of our world, where there is so much that potentially can frighten us or that we may disapprove of, I invite you, if you wish, to think of a person or group that you dislike or distrust and resolve to find ways to understand them better through the wondrous power of love and through our shared humanity. God of all love and infinite compassion, may your love shine within us now, as we send our healing thoughts and prayers to all people and all places where there may be discord, pain and suffering. And may all beings know your love this day. Amen. The exciting variety of roles that I take on never ceases. I'm now going to be the once chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. Who I don't know if any of you have heard Jonathan Sachs speak. He's, he's recently retired. He's a wonderful man. And uh, one of his uh, favourite books um, of mine was called called To Heal a Fractured World, The Ethics of Responsibility. And here are just a few little pieces from that book. Um, Sachs believes that, that we're partners in the work of creation and that we're here to make a difference. The truths of religion are exalted, he writes, but its duties are close at hand. We know God less by contemplation than by emulation. And the choice is not between faith and deeds, for it is by our deeds that we express our faith and make it real in the life of others and in the world. Jewish ethics is refreshingly down to earth. If someone is in need, give. If someone is lonely, Invite them home. If someone you know has recently been bereaved, visit them and give them comfort. If you know of someone who has lost their job, do all you can to help them find another. The sages call this imitating God. They went further. Giving hospitality to a stranger, they said, is even greater than receiving the divine presence. This is religion at its most humanising and humane. And then there's just one piece that, that I don't think I'll ever forget these words, and he's reporting the words of somebody else. I once asked, Jonathan Sachs writes, Prince Hassan of Jordan, shortly after the assassination of Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, whether there was anything that might bring Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Muslims together... Was there a bridge over the abyss? He answered, Our shared tears, our history of suffering. That was a wise remark. There are 6,000 languages spoken today, but there is only one truly universal, the language of tears. Those are words from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. There are lots of challenges about getting older, as I know only too well and as many of you have shared with me, but one of the good things that I've come to realise is that the longer you live, the more stories you have to tell about life. And I do seem to have an inexhaustible supply of stories from assorted workplaces gathered over the years. But the story I'm about to tell is not the most satisfying because I don't know the ending. And since our services are sent out into the world in the form of recorded podcasts, available potentially for anyone to listen to, it might just be that the person I'm about to talk about will hear this and get in touch. And I hope so, because I'm about to break one of the cardinal rules of preaching, which is don't tell stories about other people, without asking them first. Particularly if the story is personal in some way. So I'm changing the name and I'm hoping that I will be forgiven. And anyway, this story made front page news in the Yorkshire Evening Post a long time ago. I was in my first year of teaching in the early 80s. I was getting used to staff room life. Now you youngsters will find it hard to imagine this but in those days you could smoke at work and the staff room had a permanent fog of (laughs) cigarette smoke that hung there in the air from break to lunchtime and break and after school there were overflowing ashtrays and there was much raucous teasing and banter which doesn't happen in school staff rooms now because everybody's staring at a computer screen and printing manically There was a young woman teacher who stood out from the crowd for me. She opened the windows when I didn't dare to. She tended the plants struggling to grow on the windowsill and she talked about matters other than football. I'll call her Jan. She was a vegan and she clearly disapproved, but in a quiet way, of my then vegetarian diet. And she was passionate about compassionate farming. She was kind to me and I appreciated it. And then she disappeared. She did not come to work ever again and I've never seen her since nor heard anything of her life. For months there was no explanation from the school's management. Another teacher was brought in to take her classes and then the story appeared in the newspaper reporting that she had been sent to prison for two years. And what had this kind and gentle person done? She joined an animal rights group. And as she had a car, she had agreed to drive with a homemade bomb in the boot of her car, which was to be placed outside a fur shop in the city centre in Leeds. Aren't we strange creatures, us humans, that in our passion for a cause... In this example, a cause that promoted kindness to animals, that in supporting such a worthy cause, we are prepared at times to do violence to others. And there are so many other examples, aren't there? And and I expect you have them in your minds not least of which some of the extremist religious believers, for example, followers of faiths that all emphasise love and compassion, and yet these followers are prepared to maim and kill others in the name of their religion and are often convinced that their God wants them to take such violent paths. This all raises the question for me of what is then an appropriate way to respond when we feel strongly that something is wrong in our world. Our human responses might be seen as a spectrum. At the one end are responses of people like Jan all those years ago, people who feel so strongly about an issue that they are filled with rage and may become as violent as the people they're angry about at the other end of the spectrum for me is despair and passivity, a feeling that there's just so much wrong in our world that it is a hopeless task to even begin to try and make a difference. And in the middle of this spectrum, well, I think there, there is an area of potential, a potential to find ways of being that can make a difference here, now, in the world. If you have a look at today's Order of Service sheet, you'll find a quotation by writer and spiritual teacher Andrew Harvey about a possible way of responding to the ills of the world, a way that he calls sacred activism. And I quote... When the deepest and most grounded spiritual vision is married to a practical and pragmatic drive to transform all existing political, economic and social institutions, a holy force, the power of wisdom and love in action is born. This force I define as sacred activism. Wisdom and love in action, a holy force. One of Andrew Harvey's suggestions is that we seek inspiration from people who are an example of wisdom and love in action. And I don't know if any of you have read or seen news reports or interviews this week with the 16-year-old Malala Yousafzai, the 16-year-old Pakistani advocate for women's rights and access to education. An outspoken critic of the Taliban's tactics in her native Swat Valley... She was the, as you will know, the subject of an attempted assassination at the hands of a Taliban gunman because she was unafraid to speak out. You know the story. She was just six, 14, a Talib fighter boarded her bus, asked the question, Who is Malala? What a question. Pointed a pistol at her head and pulled the trigger. And she survived, she's made a full recovery, she's been a transformative figure in human rights, I think. And she was interviewed on an American TV news programme this week. And in a key moment of the interview, John Stewart asked her how she reacted when she learned that the Taliban wanted her dead. And this is what she said. I started thinking about that, and I used to think that the Talib would come and he would just kill me. But then I said, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? Then I would reply to myself, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. (laughs) But then I said, if you hit a Talib with your shoe, then there would be no difference between you and the Talib. You must not treat others with cruelty and that much harshly. You must fight others, but through peace and through dialogue and through education. Then I said... I will tell him how important education is and that I even want education for your children as well. And I will tell him, that's what I want to tell you. Now do what you want. She expresses so simply there, doesn't she, that essential spiritual teaching that if we match violence with violence, then we've descended to the level of those we're concerned about. Now we're not all called upon. To be that brave, nor to live our whole lives in service of others. But we are all part of one body of humankind, one of billions of cells of life. And we cannot hope to live well if we live as self-centredly as those farmers we heard of earlier on, good at numbers but useless at living cooperatively with each other. We have a responsibility for one another and for our world. And that means we have the ability to respond, response-ability, and then we can be part of the work of healing here on earth. I won't go into too much depth on this now, but I can certainly give you more readings from Andrew Harvey if you're interested in this. But one of the things that he writes in his book, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, He writes that he studied just why terrorist and fundamentalist organisations have been so successful. And one of the reasons for their success is that their movements rely on cells, small individual cells of between 6 and 12 people who encourage, sustain and inspire each other. And, of course, when I read that, I thought of our small groups and small groups in communities all around our world who joined together for far more positive aims. Andrew Harvey um, described these groups as a network of grace, small groups working together in love and wisdom and inspiring one another to make a difference. Isn't that a beautiful image? of these networks of grace connecting cells of people together, think of all the ways that we are connected in our friendships, in our families, in our clubs and our choirs, in churches and mosques and synagogues and temples. By clarifying our intentions and ensuring that all our actions stem from a place of love, I think we can all become sacred activists and we can all play our part, however small, to counterbalance messages of hatred and fear. And even here, in Britain today, I think there is an urgent need of such counterbalancing. Have you listened to the messages of politics recently that seem to be basing their, their campaigns upon messages of fear and hate This has been done because of the economic concerns that are facing our world. But my concern is that those economic issues are being used to turn people one against another. And that needs to be combated urgently. I end with some words by theologian Frederick Buchner. It's also on your hymn sheet. The life I touch... For good or ill, we'll touch another life, and that in turn another, until who knows when the trembling stops, or in what far place my touch will be felt. May our touch be the touch of love. Amen. Go in peace. Speak the truth. Give thanks each day. Respect the earth and her creatures, for they are alive like you. Care for your body. It is a wondrous gift. Live simply. Be of service. Be guided by your faith and not your fear. Go lightly on your path. Walk in a sacred manner. Amen. Amen. Go well and blessed be.